We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So great to see you guys this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online today. We're going to jump in with both feet into something that might feel to a lot of us like it's a new trend in the church world. Uh, for some of us, the way we respond to it is with confusion. The way that some people are responding to it is with uh, anxiety and fear. The way that some people are engaging with this thing that I'm talking about, there's just some real deep hurts. And the thing that I hope that you see today, my prayer for you, the thing that I believe that you're going to see by the end of this message is this thing that I'm talking about. It's something that's addressed in Scripture. It shows up over and over again in church history, and there is no reason for us to be afraid of it. But before I tell you what that thing is that we're going to talk about, I want to set the table by uh, redirecting our attention to what we just heard on the video. The narrators were reading something called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was written in the 4th century. It was uh, a summary of answering this question, what is it that we believe? What is true about Jesus and what he has done? What are the non-negotiables of the Christian faith? The Nicene Creed, written in the 4th century, it summarizes that. It summarized that for believers back then. It summarizes it for believers today. We share an, an astonishing amount of unity. We are united with believers throughout time with believers around the globe and across cultural differences. And we are united with believers even from different denominational backgrounds. Our, we have an astonishing amount of unity in the historic Orthodox Christian faith. And what the Nicene Creed summarizes is Orthodox. It's straight teaching. It's the non-negotiables. And yet, uh, sometimes Christians still disagree. Did you know that about Christians? Have you met one? We disagree about stuff. 
but we have an incredible amount of unity. It's not because we agree on everything. It's because we agree on the most important things, and that's what's summarized in something like the the Nicene Creed. And in addition to sharing unity and the non-negotiables of the faith, we're also supposed to have relational unity. And this kind of unity that we're talking about, Jesus prayed for it, for us to have it, and he talked about it in a way that raises it to a level of urgency. Last week, we looked at this a part of a prayer of Jesus in John 17. He prayed, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me in, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete, what's that word? Unity. Then the world will know. And our big idea last week was this. Jesus hung his credibility on our unity. And I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that Jesus was praying for a kind of unity that's like a coin with two sides. On one side is unity and the non-negotiables of the faith, and we have that. And the other side of the coin is unity relationally, even when we disagree. When we disagree about things that don't rise to the level of orthodoxy, when they don't rise to that level, that we could disagree and still cultivate unity by trusting and following the way of Jesus. And really, last week's message was all about that. And it might be the most important message I've given since being the pastor here. If you missed it, I want to invite you, please go back and watch that message. But last week's message really was an attempt to answer this question, how do we respond to people with whom we disagree? I've got a similar but different question today. This is our question today. How do we respond to those who doubt? And I don't mean those who doubt that we're right. That's not what I mean. I want to be really clear. We're not just talking about disagreement here. We're talking about how do we respond to the folks who doubt the non-negotiables of the faith? How do we respond to folks who doubt orthodoxy? Before I answer that question, before we really pull it apart, I want to remind us of our church's vision statement. Our vision statement answers the question, what do we want to be true of our church? This is what we want for us. This is, this is the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church of all cultures where curious, skeptical, and hurting people love to attend. Now, hopefully I can bring a little bit of clarity to this. Our goal is not to be a church that's exclusively made up of curious, skeptical, and hurting people. That's not the goal. Although there are times that all three of those words describe me. The goal, our hope, our prayer is to be the kind of church, to be the kind of collection of Jesus followers, to be the kind of congregation that when people would say that they're curious or they're skeptical or they're hurting, that they love being around us. That we would be that kind of congregation. That when people are curious, when they're skeptical when they're hurting, that they would just find it helpful and meaningful and life-giving to be around us. Doesn't that sound good? So this is, this is what we intend to be our heartbeat of our church. This is what we want your experience to be with our church. And because of our commitment to this, you're going to hear us say things like this, every question deserves an answer. We love answering questions. Now, I can't guarantee you that you're going to like the answer (laughs) that we're going to give. I can't promise that, but I can promise this transparency, that we will be transparent and we will give you the best answer we have to the questions that you have. And we consider it an honor 
It is an honor to be able to answer a question or when someone shares their doubt with us. And this is how we think about it. This is how I think about it. I'm curious if you agree with me that when someone says, hey, I don't understand something, I got a question. Or when someone says, I don't know that I agree with you on that or I have doubts about this, that that is a vulnerable act. Isn't that vulnerable when someone shares that? And so when when someone shares their doubt or their question with you, I want to encourage you to see that as an honor. They're, not only are they sharing something about themselves with you, they are saying, you are safe. And I trust you. That is a big deal. Now, with all of that said, I want to take our original question, how do we respond to people who doubt? And I want to crank up the intensity a little bit. How do we respond to those who deconstruct? Deconstruction right now is a buzzword. And if you're not familiar with this word, this word really is the word that describes the process of when people reevaluate their beliefs and dismantle from their lives things that they no longer believe are true. This right here has become kind of the catch-all word to describe those who have walked away from previously held religious belief. And this is a word that has the potential to really spark anxiety and strong emotions. And that's understandable. It sparks strong emotions for, for folks who feel like they're in the grips of doubt or maybe on the verge or inside of the process of deconstructing themselves. It can create strong emotions and hurts for people who love someone else dearly who they see going through that process. And, and one of the ways that we can experience that acutely is if you have an adult child who's walked away from the faith, just talking about the word deconstruction just ushers in all kinds of discomfort. And the question is, if I know that it's a provocative word and it creates discomfort, what makes it worthwhile for us to talk about it today? I think there are a lot of good answers to that question, but here's one. Our town, our city, has close to 100 churches. Did you know that? Close to 100 churches. Our town's population, just inside the city limits, is 115,000 people. And on any given weekend, more than 100,000 are not engaged in any church whatsoever. In a city of 115,000 with a Christian history, with a history of faith, a city of 115,000, right now, over 100,000 people are not engaged in any church right now. You know what that tells me? That this is relevant, that this is urgent, that it has become a reality. So how do we respond? Last week, we turned to the leadership of Jesus' younger brother, a guy named Jude. And it seems very likely, by the way that we read the New Testament, that Jude did not take Jesus seriously until after the resurrection, which makes sense to me. I've asked this question before. I've heard other pastors ask it. Why would it take to convince you that your brother is God? Resurrection will do it. Argument one, over. So sometime after the resurrection, Jude became a very serious follower of Jesus, a fully devoted follower of Jesus, and he also became a leader among churches. And he shared Jesus' concern for unity. And he shared Jesus' concern for vitality and health among churches. And he wrote something. He has a perspective that I think is so helpful for us today with our question. How do we respond to those who doubt? How do we respond to those who deconstruct? Jude wrote this. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, this is so important, spending time in prayer. 
Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. He's not saying, hey, listen, you're not saved, but hopefully one day you will be. What he's talking about is one day Jesus is going to return. That's what, he's, that's what he's referencing. So he continues, be merciful to those who, what? Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. And that's a, uh, that's a way of saying reverent awe. Mercy to others based on reverent awe of Jesus, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. If you're a person who you're here today and you're like, Rick, I didn't even know it was safe to talk about deconstruction or down in church, and you kind of feel yourself you're in that, or if you're a person who would say you, you've got some anxiety or hurt about it because of how you've seen it play out in somebody else's life, or if you're here today and you're thinking, Rick, I've never even heard of this before. I'm not even sure I know what you're talking about. Wherever you're at on the spectrum, let's pause and just marvel at the patience and the kindness and the graciousness and the kind of leadership that's expressed by Jude here. It's amazing. If you were here last year, excuse me, last week, you might remember that Jude had some very strong language for some people who were trying to become leaders and teachers in the church. And so much of what Jude had to write, if you go and read it, you're going to see some real forceful language. And people who are bringing division through their false teaching and their divisive, abusive, sinful, maybe even scandalous behavior that they're bringing to the church. And we have to remember that and connect that to the experience of doubt. That's probably what's driving people to doubt. That's probably what's driving Jude to use the metaphor of snatching people from fire. It's connected to teachers and would-be leaders who are bringing division and disunity through their behavior that's sinful and abusive It's scandalous. And in response to that, Jude gives us something that we should do, a kind of prescription for congregations. Jude's prescription for doubt and deconstruction, we could say deconstruction, Jude's prescription for doubt and deconstruction was mercy, urgency, and holy discontent all wrapped in prayer. I'm curious, in the verses we just read, can you see those three things? Mercy, urgency, holy discontent. I'm going to put the text back on the screen, see if you can spot it. B, there it is, obvious, easiest test ever. Right there. To those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire. Does that sound urgent? That's where we get urgency. To others show mercy. Again, he's talking about mercy, mercy mixed with fear, reverent awe of Jesus, mercy for others, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Well, that's obvious, right? That's super clear. Don't you guys hate clothing? Stained by corrupted flesh. Isn't that the worst? This is where I'm getting holy discontent. Now, what does that mean? This is one of those rare times that the, the New Testament was ri- originally written in Greek. It loses a little bit of punch translated into English. This word right here, clothing, in Greek it means undergarment. Jude is talking about underwear. And clothing stained by corrupted flesh, that's a, in the Greek language, is an idiom that means bodily omission. Judas talking about dirty underwear. That's kind of funny. It's silly. You should laugh at that. But what I'm going to say next is not laughable at all. What Jude is doing is he's saying this. This is how you should feel. This is how you should feel about people who bring in, and they bring in false teaching, and they bring in attitudes and behavior that are divisive, abusive, sinful, scandalous. You should feel the same way about that 
as you would feel about using the bathroom on yourself and sitting in it. It is holy discontent. And there's a leadership lesson for us in this. The leadership lesson from holy discontent is we get what we tolerate. Holy discontent, hear me on this, holy discontent is a refusal to be comfortable with things that shouldn't be tolerated. Holy discontent is a refusal to be comfortable with things that should not be tolerated. And in Jude's context, he was specifically responding to false teachers who with their attitudes, their teaching, and their behavior were bringing in division through abusive, sinful, and even scandalous behavior. Mercy, urgency, holy discontent, all wrapped in prayer. And to take Jude seriously means that we don't let our commitment to prayer and mercy undermine our ability to stand up and speak up when there are things that are unacceptable happening in Jesus' church. Because Jesus is too good. The gospel movement is too important. People are too valuable. And the church is too precious. Mercy, urgency, holy discontent, all wrapped in prayer. And so that's the kind of response that Jude wants us to have. And I think it's also helpful and appropriate to ask this question, what drives people to deconstruct? What drives people there? Because if we can understand that, I think it will help us to be more merciful and urgent and really operate from a place of holy discontent. So answering this question, it would be too ambitious of me to try to give a one-size-fits-all for everybody. Probably would be foolish of me to try and attempt that. So what I want to do is I want to share with you some things that I've observed from reading countless stories of deconstruction and being with people in the middle of it relationally. And what I'm going to share is really kind of a 30,000-foot view perspective. I'm not talking about right here, this church, or, or what's going on here immediately. I'm talking about things that really span across the United States, things that have been going on for a while. 30,000-foot view. There are three dominant themes that keep showing up. Number one, the theme is belief. And for some folks, what they're just saying is they doubt the merits of the historic Orthodox Christian faith. They just, they're just not sure if they trust it as true. Now, for some folks, the process of going into deconstruction is highly academic and intellectual. And for some, this is purely all that it is. It is exclusively this. My experience is it's rarely just that. There's other things involved, too. Another theme that comes up is the theme of culture. Culture is incredibly powerful. It is a strong thing. It tends to outshine belief, and it tends to, to dominate over belief. This is an incredibly powerful thing, and churches have culture. If you've ever studied business, you might be familiar with Peter Drucker's famous quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Somebody who's an expert in culture, I once heard her say this, what we know matters, who we are matters more. What we know matters, who we are matters more. And sometimes people's bad experience with this leads them to second guess this. It is possible, again, this is the 30,000 foot view, it's possible for a church to have beliefs that are absolutely right and have a culture that is dead wrong. And you might ask, well, how could that be the case? Because our beliefs are not the primary thing that shape our culture. The primary thing that shapes our culture are our values. This is why our unity, our hospitality, and our kindness are so incredibly important. This is why constantly remembering and reinforcing and 
and recommitting to our church's stated values are so incredibly important because it's our values that are the primary shaper of our culture. But there's another theme that tends to emerge in the stories. It's the theme of scandal. And I don't know if there's more church scandal now uh, than there has been throughout history. If there's less, I don't know. I don't know if it's the news cycle. I don't know if it's uh, the emergence of social media and podcasts, but there are a lot of people who say this is huge right now and that it just feels like it's everywhere in the church world. And I gotta admit, I'm one of those guys that it just feels like scandal is everywhere in the church world right now. And if you know, you know. Like if you're familiar with the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, the saga with Hillsong, social media accounts like Preachers and Sneakers, or if you're aware of other reports and in investigations that are taking place across different denominations and clusters of churches right now. I mean, if you know, you know. And if you're thinking, Rick, I have no clue what you're talking about. I've never heard of this before. This is what you need to know. This right here not only harms people's real lives, it not only distances, causes people to grow distant from, from a church, it can also cause people to doubt Jesus. And over all of this, Jude said, our response is mercy, urgency, holy discontent, and all wrapped in prayer. Now, this isn't something that Jude just made up. I'm convinced he learned it from his brother Jesus. He saw it in his brother Jesus. I'm going to refer to a story that probably a number of you know. For some of you, maybe it's new. That's okay. I'll tell the story. There was a group of Jewish religious leaders called Pharisees, and they caught a woman in the act of adultery. I don't know how you catch someone doing that, but somehow they did. It kind of feels like a trap. And they brought this woman to Jesus because they wanted to shame her and they were trying to put Jesus in a situation where he would endorse them killing her by throwing rocks on her till she's dead. Now, interestingly, the guy who was involved in the adultery wasn't there, was not included, almost like there was a double standard. And in a way that only Jesus could, he stands up to these guys and they back down and they leave basically with their tails between their legs. And Jesus turns to this woman and says this, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus was courageous with his mercy, full of grace, full of truth. Now, he wasn't grace without truth, Jesus addressed this woman and her sin. Why? Because sin hurts people. But Jesus was so committed to mercy, he would rather be condemned than to condemn her. Jesus is so committed to mercy, he would rather be condemned than to condemn us. He's merciful. There's another example of Jesus' mercy. I don't know if you've thought about it like mercy before, but I see it as mercy. And this time, it's not Jesus responding to people who are in the throes of a very harsh and rigid and abusive culture. It's a response to people who are struggling with belief. And it's mercy towards people who believed in him, and now they're not sure that they believe in him. And Jesus is merciful. Do you know how Jesus spent his time after the resurrection? You know what he was doing? Acts chapter 1 gives us a snapshot. After his suffering, after the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus presented himself to the, them, which is the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Like if it was me, if I was the one who came back from the dead, I'll give you a day. 
Like maybe a day. And I'm like, I'm here. <laughs> what do you need? What is wrong with you people? I'm right here. 40 days? 40 days of many convincing proofs? My goodness. That's amazing. You know what that tells me? That tells me. If you're someone who is doubting and you don't know that it's safe to talk about your doubt, or if you're somebody who there was a time that belief was strong and now belief isn't that strong, Jesus is not throwing a tantrum about you in heaven right now. He is not offended by you. If you're willing to take truth seriously, if you're willing to roll up your sleeves and get honest about the questions you have and, and dig into what the best information is, I'm convinced that Jesus will meet you where you are and give you what you need. Why did Jude emphasize mercy? It's because what we see in Jesus and it's the way that he is with us. And I want to make one more observation about mercy and it doesn't come from the text. It just comes from my uh, experience with people. People who are losing faith are already beating themselves up. They don't need us to join in. And there's something just anti-Jesus, anti-Bible, anti-gospel about condemning or ostracizing are being pushy with or shaming people who are struggling. And so this is what I want us to do. I want us to hold on to what Jude said, to be merciful. But with the other hand, let's also hold on to Jude's encouragement for us to respond with urgency. Remember, he used the metaphor of snatching someone out of the fire. And on my recent trip to Ghana, it caused me to see this verse in a different way. Everywhere that I went, every home that I went to out in the courtyard, there's a fire pit because they cooked over open fire. And you probably are aware of this, but there is a problem internationally with too many kids falling into these open cooking areas, these open fire pits, burning themselves, scalding themselves. And, in the same, and, I, and I would see these kids just kind of running around and playing around this. And I imagine that Jude might be using this kind of imagery on purpose in the same way that we would spring into action and grab someone and try to protect them because we don't want them to be, to be hurt that we would respond the same way when people are being led to doubt, especially because of bad things that have, that have pushed them away from trusting in Jesus. And again, this is something that Jude learned from Jesus. Probably Jesus' most famous sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. And there is a moment in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is just clear-eyed and he gets very direct and very urgent in how he's preaching to people. Matthew 7 says this, this is Jesus talking. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. I want to make one observation from what Jesus has to say to us. and This is for those who are doubting. This is, our, this is for folks who are certain and who are devoted. Really, this observation from Jesus, I don't even think you have to believe in Jesus to see the truth of it. Foundations are binary. They either can or cannot carry the weight of your life. Foundations are binary. They either can or they cannot carry the weight of your life. Every single one of us in this room, every single one watching online, we are building our lives on something. We're building our lives on a set of deep down bedrock beliefs. We're building our lives on a complex network of deep down assumptions that we cannot prove. 
We're building our lives on those things. I have them. You have them. Everybody has them. And those, that foundation of beliefs and assumptions that we're building our lives on, they either can or cannot carry the weight of our life. And this is where it gets real in a hurry. We do not discover the strength of our foundation when life is going great. We truly discover the strength of our foundation in the middle of adversity and when we are suffering. And this is why it's urgent. This is why Jude would push us to respond with urgency because every lie comes with a price tag. And if I build my life on something that isn't true, if you build your life on something that isn't true, it may not be today, it may not be for years, but the bill is coming due. The cost is coming. Do you know what Jesus is advocating? Do you know what Jesus is advocating by saying, look at the foundation that you're building your life on? Are you on the sand or are you on the rock? You know what Jesus is advocating? Deconstruction. Deconstruction as a way to avoid destruction. Because deconstruction is far better than experiencing destruction. Reevaluate your life. Discover things that may not be true. Dismantle those from your life and rebuild on what is true. Believe it or not, throughout all of Christian history, we have been celebrating thousands of stories of deconstruction. We didn't even realize that that's exactly what we were celebrating. Earlier, we sang a song by this guy, written by Martin Luther. Before he became a Christian leader, he was studying to be a lawyer. He was stuck in a storm one night, and he thought he was going to die. And so he prayed to a saint, and he was trying to basically make a bargain with God. If you let me live, I'll give my life to you. Sure enough, he lived. The next day, he joined a monastery. Uh, They were called the Black Augustinians because they wore black robes. They were very strict, the most strict monastic order there was at the time, and he took it to a next level. He severely disciplined himself, and he would even take whips and engage in self-flagellation. He would beat his own body, trying to show God how much he, he believed in him, how devoted he was, trying to earn forgiveness and approval and acceptance from God. Until one day he did something novel and he read the Bible. And he opened up and he read Romans chapter 1 and he saw something that he had never heard preached in church before that we're saved by faith, simply by trusting in Jesus, that we can't earn it. God doesn't even want us to try and earn it, He just wants us to come to Him in faith. And it ignited deconstruction in his life. He had to reevaluate all of this uh, religious stuff that he had built in his life. He had to dismantle that and rebuild on a foundation of truth in Jesus, a foundation of the good news of grace that we receive by faith. And kind of accidentally, he kicked off what's called the Protestant Reformation. And if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, let's think about it this way. It's basically an entire continent going through deconstruction at once reevaluating their beliefs, dismantling false beliefs, and rebuilding on the truth. Fast forward 200 years at a man named John Wesley. Like Martin Luther, he was raised in the church world, deeply religious, trying to earn his way to God, trying to earn forgiveness, trying to, to earn acceptance and approval by God. And he even went on a mission trip. He left England, went on a mission trip uh, uh, to, to America, and just doing everything that he could to try and be good enough, and it broke him. He came back emotionally devastated. And this is what he wrote about his mission trip. He said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? 
because he discovered that all of his religious activity and experiences and belief were coming up hollow. One night, he was invited to go to a Bible study. He didn't even want to go, but he went anyway, and he wrote about it like this. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society on Aldersgate Street. You might even be at church right now not wanting to be here, and you have no idea what God's about to do in your life. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. So this guy is reading what Luther wrote about what he discovered when he read Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And he goes on to to write about that that night began the process of rapid deconstruction as he had to dismantle all of his previous religious ideas and rebuild, reconstruct on a foundation of truth in Jesus that was built on grace that's received by faith. And so this is encouragement that I want to leave you with today. I hope that this is encouraging to you. The problem isn't going through deconstruction. The problem is stopping there. It is okay, and it is actually a good thing to reevaluate and dismantle things from our lives that we no longer believe are true, but we've got to rebuild. We've got to reconstruct. We've got to reconstruct on the truth. And here is something that I find incredibly sobering. And we see it in the lives of guys like Martin Luther and John Wesley. It is possible to be raised in church and it is possible to be deeply committed to Christian things and discover that you are building on a foundation other than Jesus.